we see the movement through the health crisis in matters of days and weeks and months. And we see the movement through the climate crisis actually much more in months and years and decades. We have to be realistic about the fact that after the 2008 crash, emissions came back pretty quickly. We need to understand the rebound effect in all of this. There are going to be a lot of people who hope that part of the business of getting back to normal is getting back to doing a lot of the things that caused a lot of the emissions. So the whole ESG has gone up, and I think because of this crisis, the S element, call it the social from environmental, social and governance, has increased enormously. And the financial community is increasingly able to assess that risk and assign values to that. Hello, and welcome back to the Net Zero Business Podcast, the spin-off series from ED's long-running Sustainable Business Covered podcast. This week, we're running a special two-part episode to coincide with Net Zero Week, ED's theme week of online content dedicated to inspiring and informing energy and sustainability professionals on accelerating net zero ambitions, even during this disruptive lockdown period. This episode is part one of a two-parter and what may be one of the strongest lineups you're likely to find on any podcast. This two-parter is sponsored by Centrica Business Solutions and we'll be hearing from them in part two alongside two sustainability professionals spearheading net zero commitments at some major companies. But first up, um, as I'm sure you could tell from the intro at the start, we're focusing on the green recovery from the coronavirus pandemic and exploring what the new normal looks like through the lens of climate action, net zero targets and business stewardship. Very soon, we're going to be playing three back-to-back episodes of Edie's Susty Talk video series uh, interviews with the following people. Former UN Chief Cristiana Figueres, Forum for the Futures Founder-Director Jonathan Porritt, and Unilever's former Chief Executive Paul Polman. So yeah, arguably three of the most respective voices in the Green Movement, all in one podcast episode. The free interviews are going to last around an hour and 10 minutes in total, and we'll be playing them uninterrupted back to back, although there's ample opportunity to pause in between each one if you'd like to. But for any aspiring sustainability professional, I imagine this is very much your Eye of the Tiger uh, soundtrack, for lack of a better term. So if you haven't already, get those walking or running shoes dusted off. Uh, Go find that tallest staircase, the longest nature trail, or just sit back and indulge uh, in some of the must-have insight from some of the world leaders of this CSR and climate movement. We're going to be running the interviews in chronological order, starting with Figueres, then moving on to Porritt, before finishing with a 35-minute conversation with Pullman himself. That's it, that's the episode, and I do hope that you will enjoy it as much as the ED team enjoyed putting the conversations together. Once they're finished, though, do check out part two of this Net Zero Week special to get a deep dive into the anatomy of a Net Zero target with some other expert speakers. But without further ado, enjoy. Now, it's Edie's Net Zero Week, um, and to kick it off, I must say it's a real privilege uh, to be joined by today's Susky Talk guest, who is none other than Cristiana Figueres. Uh, Christiana was, of course, the Executive Secretary to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from 2010 to 2016. Uh, and during that time in 2015, 
Christiana made history uh, as a key architect of the Paris Agreement, where famously 195 countries came together um, and came to a consensus around tackling climate change. Um, Christiana, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Firstly, and most importantly, how, how are you keeping it this time and, and where are you connecting to us from? Well, um, I must admit to huge privilege because I am first in the very wonderful country of Costa Rica, my home country, uh, that is currently still holding the world record for lowest mortality rates on COVID. Um, and, uh, and I'm personally way down in the south of Costa Rica, just on the tip of the largest national park. Um, and so I have just beautiful surroundings and I see more scarlet macaws and more howler monkeys than humans. So I am quite, quite privileged environment. <laughs> wow. It sounds like it's, a, it's in, a, in a bit of a bubble then in, in comparison to the rest of the world with regards to coronavirus, COVID-19. Is it just a bit behind, do you feel, or is it, is it, has there been other measures implemented to ensure? Our curve has already bent. Uh, we bent the curve about uh, two or three weeks ago, and uh, it's one. It's on its uh, very steep decline. We uh, we are five million people in Costa Rica, and we've only had seven deaths in total. Our ICU units are still uh, underutilized, and uh, we have just really the government has been um, with draconian measures uh, has really capped the incidence very low. And with a very highly educated population that we have in Costa Rica, we've all been uh, pretty obedient. Mm -hmm. So it's been it's it's been a tough experience, certainly for those in the informal sector who have lost their livelihoods, and and that's the, uh, the the major issue now is how to bring those people back into the workforce as quickly as possible. But I would say the health crisis we have survived very well. And uh, we're now heading into uh, alleviating the economic crisis uh, with recovery measures. Mm. Okay, has of course been an incredibly challenging time for for everyone around the world, and uh, many aspects of economies and businesses have had to to slow down or completely shut down in order to tackle this crisis. So, Christiana, I wanted to get your thoughts on on where this climate crisis actually, where the climate crisis actually sort of fits into this right now. Um, what connections, if any, can be drawn between the uh, the existential threat of climate change and um, the existential threat of uh, and tackling this pandemic um yeah it's very interesting right because on the one hand they are very very different crises uh, the um pandemic crisis is an acute crisis that happened very quickly moved very very quickly and has hit very deeply um, uh, and the uh, climate crisis is not acute, it's chronic. We've known about it for a long time and, uh, and, and will also hit very deeply. The difference, of course, is I think uh, the tempo of the advance that we see the movement through the health crisis in matters of days and weeks and months. And we see the movement through the climate crisis actually much more in months and years and decades. Um, and so, therefore, it is understandable that we humans, in our infinite lack of capacity to uh, think and act long term, we have actually um, dealt better with the immediate threat than we do with a threat that is perceived to be somewhere down the line. Mm. That, is, um, that, that is why I think it's very important to understand 
that we have huge lessons to learn from this immediate crisis, from this acute and, pro and chronic crisis, with huge lessons to learn that should um, prepare us to deal better with the climate crisis. Because um, both of them are high probability, high impact risks, and for both of them, what we have already learned is that delay is very costly. It is definitely better to prevent than to cure. We learned that from COVID-19 and it is definitely true about climate change. It's mm -hmm. definitely true that it's better to act early rather than later and that the costs only escalate exponentially with delay. The current costs of, uh, of climate, uh, un unless we do the right thing, are actually could all go up to $600 trillion. And so while the $15 trillion that have already been dedicated to economic recovery of COVID and could go up to $20 trillion, while that is historic, and we have never seen such injection of capital into the economy, the fact is um, that it is an antecedent, or let's call it um, a, um, a, a trial run for what we would have to do if we don't deal with climate change. Nobody asked for these two crises to collide onto each other. We definitely didn't, but they have. And so now I think the responsibility is to make the solutions converge. That is where we really need to pay our attention. And as we inject fresh money into the system, as uh, the economy begins to move its wheels again, as jobs begin to open up and be created, it is absolutely important that both governments, but also businesses, look at carbon constraint, or rather, let's think of it positively, the increasing efficiency of carbon as being one of the design principles of the recovery processes. This, this um, crisis has been so broad and so deep that there's no way we're going to get out of it without definite focus on innovation and new ways of doing everything, whether you're a government or whether you're a corporate. And that innovation has to have carbon efficiency as one of its core principles and guidelines. And if we do that, then we will be able to recover from this crisis and prevent the worst of the climate crisis. Okay, um, and I also mentioned I mentioned at the start of this conversation that this is happening during ED's Net Zero Week, uh, which is all about kind of keeping up momentum and, and taking new actions to drive um, us towards a net zero carbon economy. Um, I guess if we if we put COVID nineteen aside for a moment, what what have you made of the UK's net zero target, and and what areas of policy do you think may require the most focus or development now to actually make net zero happen in a country like this? Well, um, actually, it's very difficult to put COVID to the side because uh, it is definitely the most transformational uh, that has ever occurred in living history. And um, or in fact, some people argue in the past 500 years. And so I don't really want to put things to the side because they actually the situation that we're in actually opens many possibilities for being more responsible on climate and being more responsible on emissions. Um, so let me give you, you know, uh, a couple of examples. Air travel. Air travel is not going to return to where we were. 
because most of us have become pretty fluent in these kinds of technologies. And it'll be very difficult to convince people that it's worth their time to travel three times around the planet to go to a meeting that lasts one or two or four hours. It's just not going to happen again. So business travel will definitely be changed. Even land transportation, commuting on a daily basis, will also be changed. Because I'm willing to bet that corporations have learned that most of their employees can be just as efficient and just as effective and just as productive working from home. That's not true of everyone because some people have very difficult work conditions, but it is true of most people. And so corporates will want to actually save office space and not have to uh, use 100% of the space or build buildings for 100% of their employees, but rather to cut down to 40 or 50 or 60% of their employees because the others will be rotating around and working from home. Urban design is going to be different because we will be having with less commuting, we will be having less use for uh, roads and bridges and cars that will be going in and out, especially everything that is, that is um, private transportation. And so maybe urban designers have a little bit more flexibility now to design in more green spaces or certainly more spaces for biking and pedestrians um, than we did before. Um, I think the other thing that is going to be changing a lot is um, residential, um, re residential habits because there are so many people who in this crisis have actually chosen to leave the big cities, to leave London and leave the small flats and leave the big cities in the UK and go and, you know, either live in their second homes if they're fortunate enough to have that or with family members that live outside um, or even rent something outside. Um, and the, the virtues and the benefits of living with more green space and with more space in general, um, I think has become all of a sudden a reality that we hadn't realized before. So, you know, there's so many aspects that are actually very, very deeply transformed by the reality that we're living now. Of course, it's difficult to know which ones of these are going to be more or less sticky, but I don't think that we can pretend that the reality that we're living right now will just disappear and we will go back to where we were in November or December of last year. Um, I just don't think that that's realistic, and I think it behooves all of us to understand that we're getting ready for a different reality and that that reality has to be much more carbon efficient. Mm. Okay, um, and I'm going to just, with my closing question, uh, I'm going to uh, actually use the book, use your book, uh, which I've just finished reading, and I must recommend to uh, anyone that's remotely interested in, in the climate change um, debate. Um, and uh, particularly the thing that sort of stood out for me was the, the final section, the kind of what you can do now section, um, because it gives you tangible kind of clear advice about what we can all do to, to overcome the climate crisis. So, Christiana, final question. If you were to have to rewrite that section now for, for Edie's audiences of, 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 audience of, of businesses, um, especially in light of the pandemic we're battling at the moment, what would be the key points you would make within it? What can this audience do now to help um, overcome the climate crisis? Well, I, I think one thing that we didn't mention, mention clearly enough is the need to establish your baseline, to use a you know, pretty uh, 
everywhere available carbon calculator to figure out what your personal, what your family, what your corporate carbon footprint is right now. And then figure out where the bigger chunks are and through the innovation of both technology and work and living practices that we're all going to have to do, um, really commit to figuring out how do you bring that, that carbon footprint down to one half of what it is today, um, certainly before 2030. That is entirely doable. In fact, it is doable before 2030, um, but it must be done at the very latest by 2030. I think the opportunity for that is much, much broader now than it was just a couple of months ago. Um, and, uh, and, and the responsibility for doing so is also much more evident because if we humans are having a very hard time surviving this crisis, getting through it and getting to thriving after the crisis, it is even more, um, it is even more challenging if we are ever to hit the threshold of the climate crisis as scientists have defined it and described it. So we do not want to put ourselves in the situation of jumping out of the frying pan and then falling into the raging fire of climate, uh, of, a, of a runaway climate change. This is an, an enormous responsibility to change the way we act in the world, the technologies that we use, the way we work. Um, and it is all entirely possible. So bottom line, good news. That's a good bottom line to end on. Um, thank you so much. I'll bring this chat to a close now. Um, Christiana, I really appreciate your time. I hope you stay safe and well there in, in Costa Rica. And then we can have you along to an ED event uh, very soon. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Porritt, uh, the founder director of Forum for the Future. Jonathan's an eminent writer, broadcaster, campaigner on sustainable development, um, and his efforts led him to uh, being named the Lifetime Achievement Award winner at ED Sustainability Leaders Awards back in February, which really does feel like a lifetime ago. Um, anyway, Jonathan, hello. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, where are you joining from, um, and, and what sort of life in lockdown looking like for you at the moment? Joining from Cheltenham in uh, Gloucestershire. It's a very nice place to have to be locked down, as it were. The weather's been amazing. And I suppose, in a way, I'm coping. So much stuff done on Zoom and Microsoft Teams. This is an exception, obviously, Luke. But so no face-to-face -face meetings. I'm feeling the, the wear and tear of that, to be honest. It'll be good to get back to a little bit more human contact, I have to admit. Mm, yeah, I think we've all reached that kind of that, that final point, haven't we? After the first few Teams meetings and Microsoft Zoom and Zoom meetings, they were uh, quite fun and then it sort of dies down a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so I wanted to cast your mind back actually to uh, what feels like decades ago, otherwise known as February 2020, um, when you took to the stage um, to give your Lifetime Achievement uh, Award acceptance speech. Um, and you said then that this year marks uh, an extraordinarily rare inflection point in the history of humankind. Um, of course, you weren't at that point referring to this pandemic, um, but I suppose the point does still stand in that we're now facing two global crises in, in coronavirus and climate change. So 
Jonathan, what do you think the pandemic has done to the global climate movement? Are there still reasons for sustainability professionals to be champions of hope, as you put it, back at the awards ceremony? There are still good reasons to maintain that kind of expectation that things will change in the not too distant future. But it would be crazy to pretend there hasn't been a real slowing of the momentum around climate change. I mean, it's very noticeable in every corner of the world, really. Some of the initiatives that were leaping forward on different climate-related issues, um, increased focus in the media, increased focus in professional associations, businesses, etc., in the investment community. Honestly, all of that has gone on to slow, back, back burner type stuff. And you don't get any of that sense of driven forward momentum that we had then. So we have to be realistic about that. And that's why all of the discussions that are now taking place, very rich, engaged discussions about how we can make the recovery from COVID fit this critical need of today, which is doing everything in a way that is consistent with addressing the climate emergency, that debate is now absolutely front and centre. And the good thing is that a lot of companies are still very engaged in that debate, looking at the synergies between uh, a post-COVID recovery period or coming out of COVID recovery period and the climate emergency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in terms of the kind of the direct impacts on on global emissions and, and, war and warming, um, I suppose there's two ways of looking at things. There's the sort of short-term impacts and then there's longer-term impacts and, and results. Um, in the short term, um, you probably have seen the International Energy Agency uh, forecasting that emissions are going to be falling by as much as 8% this year as a result of the coronavirus and the lockdowns it's, it's caused, um, primarily through the cut in transport, aviation, and reductions in electricity demands and industrial activity. Um, but what, what's really interesting is that when you look at um, what we need to be doing to bring the 1.5 degree limit within reach, um, emissions would need to fall by some 7.6% every year. So even with all of these extreme measures um, to lock down economies, the emissions would only just be enough to drop um, to see the levels that we'd need as defined within the Paris Agreement. So long question, but what do you make of that? Um, do you believe 1.5 is still achievable, given what we're seeing at the moment? It's pretty sobering, isn't it? I, I think when people said emissions have got to drop by 7.6% per annum for the next decade, everybody said, oh yeah, well, 7.6%, that's okay. And now we're looking at what it has taken to get, uh, as you said, an 8% reduction in emissions. And everyone's saying, bloody hell, if that's what it looks like, we are going to be really, really hard put to get that kind of reduction on an ongoing basis year after year for the next decade. So we have to be realistic about that. We have to be realistic about the fact that after the 2008 crash, emissions came back pretty quickly. It didn't take long for emissions to reestablish themselves at the pre-crash levels. We need to understand the rebound effect in all of this. There are going to be a lot of people who hope that part of the business of getting back to normal is getting back to doing a lot of the things that caused a lot of the emissions. So there's no easy way of squaring this particular circle. The good news, of course, is that we are seeing some changes in behavior, which I think will be lasting. I'm absolutely convinced that we'll never go back to the same level of regular commuting that we had in a country like the UK ever again. I'm not saying everybody's going to work 
now all the time from home because they're not. And I seriously hope that that isn't the new working reality for everybody, because I think we still need some of the interaction and the social engagement that workplaces bring. But we're going to see a dramatic reduction in those daily commuting patterns. I'm pretty sure we're going to see a huge reduction in the emissions from aviation um, over the course of the next, at least the next two to three years. And I'm not sure what that will build back to in the future. I'm pretty sure we're going to see shifts in the way in which we now look to the global food economy, our dependence on imported food at every turn. I think we're going to look to ways of producing more of our own food here in the UK, build more resilience into our food chains. So there are many, many ways in which we can now lock in the emission reductions that we've seen already in 2020. But the politics of that is going to be really tough. And that's why companies are critical, because they need to be on the right side of the tough politics of that debate. Um, well, you covered various aspects of, of what my next question was going to be in, in terms of the, um, the green recovery, which I mentioned in my introduction. Um, I wanted to ask you what you thought a kind of good green recovery would look like if there were any particular areas that you thought needed the most focus in order to achieve that and, and what role, therefore, businesses need to be playing um, as we look to cover, uh, recover from, from COVID. I think the critical thing for governments anywhere in the world, including the UK, is that as they set about bringing purchasing power back into the economy, a reflation strategy, they need to do that in such a way that they can create good jobs for people off the back of doing the kind of infrastructure changes that we so desperately need. So, for instance, we currently have a commitment to a very large ambitious road building program that should instantly be dropped. And what we should see is we should start doing a lot more investment in our cities and towns using urban planning powers to create opportunities to shift cities towards much more public transport, shared car schemes, cycling, walking, that whole portfolio, if you like, of sustainable transport solutions. We urgently need to see reinvestment in the natural economy. I was so pleased to see that the Committee on Climate Change in its report flagged up that the government now has an opportunity to do a lot to create new jobs in regenerating nature in this country. And I don't just mean only tree planting, but simply getting back and restoring many of the degraded ecosystems we've got. And then perhaps most importantly to me is to take the recommendation of the, of the National Infrastructure Commission here in the UK to treat energy efficiency as a strategic infrastructure priority and to put a massive new investment into first training, then skilling up, then providing jobs for huge numbers of people, including young people who are going to find the labour market intolerably difficult over the next couple of years. Uh, training people to do this retrofit of our existing housing stock, which we've been talking about for 10 years and very little, pro well, some progress has been made, but nothing like the kind of progress that we need. So you need to have opportunities where the building back better bit creates jobs is demonstrably fair so people can understand that and meets the needs of an ultra low carbon economy of the future. Mm. Okay, I'm just gonna have to scroll down because you just answered my next two questions as well. They're covering off the kind of the policy aspects and the business 
aspects of getting to, to net zero. But on, on the net zero carbon point specifically, was there anything else you would like to see happening at a, at a business level um, as we come out of the crisis? Anything that you that you'd not covered off there? You mentioned enhanced bulk efficiency, um, but should businesses look at look at going above and beyond that as we come out of this crisis? And and if so, how? Yeah, I mean, we were on a goodish path in terms of corporate commitments on climate. Um, the UK is doing reasonably well on that. M many more companies have signed up to a science-based target um, approach, which is really good, looking at what it would mean for them to decarbonize to stay below the 1.5 degrees C. Um, they need to stay true to those commitments and companies that haven't got to those commitments need to get on that page. And again, being realistic about this, we're always talking about the leadership cohort here in the UK. We tend not to talk about the tail of businesses that aren't yet on the low carbon page at all. And to be honest, the focus now needs to be very much on those companies because they're not taking advantage or getting the advantage of using energy efficiency in order to drive down costs in everything that they do. So I think, again, we've always been clear that this decarbonization journey for companies is wrapped up with business models, with efficiency, with savings, with leadership, all of these kind of things. And I am hoping that the voices of individual companies and of trade associations, business associations, CPI, you name it, that the, the, that the very strong call is don't use COVID-19 as a reason to slow down what you need to do on decarbonization. If anything, do it the other way around. Use the COVID-19 shock to our system to ensure we don't get another even more shocking shock to our system through a kind of unraveling around climate stability. And I hope that enough business leaders will be absolutely outspoken about that, using their advocacy, using their voice. There's going to be one hell of a battle going on in Bayes, uh, in the business department and in Treasury and in number 10. There are lots of voices in there saying, well, you know, just park that low carbon stuff. We can't do much about that for the time being. We are going to need every single business leader who's expressed an opinion about addressing the climate emergency. We're going to need them out there with the loudest, clearest voice that you can possibly imagine, because there's a real battle ahead, Luke, I have to say, a real battle. Mm. Um, I wanted to pick up on one of the, the sectors you, you touched on earlier on um, in aviation um, and to, to sort of explore where that sits uh, in this concept of a green recovery. Um, obviously, it's a sector that's been massively impacted by COVID. Um, Passenger flights down by more than 90% now, business travel virtually non-existent with meeting software like this, um, potentially replacing it almost indefinitely in some respects. Um, in a blog post last week, um, you, I saw that you, you, you focused on aviation um, and you said that it does still have a significant role to play in a global economy post-pandemic. Um, and you said a world without aviation would be a poorer, shrunken, inward-looking world. So. When we talk about green recovery and reaching net zero, what does sustainability leadership in aviation look like for you? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one because I guess aviation is probably the sector that is worst affected in, in the round. Um, 
along with many parts of the travel and tourism, but you've always got domestic opportunities there. And the truth of it is that the airlines know they're facing not a one-year or a two-year recovery process. They know that to build back is going to take a lot in terms of customer confidence, uh, opportunities to open up borders again, and so on. And that is really difficult for them, and there are going to be a lot of airlines in massive financial uh, problems. So for me, what I've said is I don't believe we should be talking about this as an opportunity to close down the aviation sector. That doesn't make any sense to me. I can understand why people would sort of go to that place, but I'm not sure whether that's terribly smart because we have to take into account that millions, hundreds of millions of people who are dependent still in the global economy on travel and tourism, and aviation is critical to that. But the other side of that deal is, and let's be clear about this, most airlines were not doing what they had to do to get their carbon management strategies in place. They were often hiding behind ineffective trade bodies, totally dysfunctional international discussions run by the International Civil Aviation Organization or whatever it might be. They weren't coming out demonstrating real leadership in this space. And I know that because the Forum for the Future has been doing quite a lot of work with Air New Zealand over the last uh, five or six years. And it's hard for airlines to tell it as it really is, you know, to actually come out and say our emissions may only be accounting for two, three, four percent of total global emissions today. But by 2050, emissions from aviation on a business as usual basis will account for 25 percent. You don't hear many leaders of airlines, business leaders talk about that. So they're going to have to be absolutely upfront. And then they're going to have to commit to a whole process of changes inside the industry, dramatically accelerate the efficiency argument, the need for sustainable aviation fuels. They've got to get the offsetting piece right. I know not everybody is persuaded that that's the right way out of this conundrum. But I tell you, we're never going to get to a sustainable aviation world without a lot of offsetting along the way. So that has to be done really, really well. So for me, it's a challenge to those leaders now in the industry. Ramp up that commitment. Be completely honest with consumers. Don't hide behind other people. You're in a hole now. One of the ways to get out of the hole is to regain your social license to operate by being completely upfront about what you have to do on the climate emergency. Okay, thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll move into the final question now then. Um, and I just wanted to kind of come back to, to looking at all of this from the perspective of the, of the people watching this video, the sustainability, CSR and energy professionals who are trying, maybe struggling at points to, to keep climate and sustainability high on the agenda for the organisations they work for. Do you have any thoughts or advice um, or tips um, for, for those who are trying to kind of keep sustainability going at this time? <laughs> yeah, other than dig in and make it work. It's, mm. um, I guess for me, it is going to be really interesting, the mood of the country. What is going to happen once we begin to see how to rebuild a, a new economy after COVID slackens off or ceases to be quite so impactful? as it is now. I don't think it's going to go away for quite some time. It's not just the kind of policy things. It's not just the business engagement stuff that we need to talk about. There's a, a very clear change in, in the mood in this country. 
there is a realization of how much we owe to different parts of society that previously we discounted the importance of in the NHS and care professions and so on. There is an understanding that far too many people have lived for far too long in abhorrently precarious financial conditions. And business has a role in helping to put a lot of that right. So for me, when people talk about the just transition around climate change, companies are going to have a role to play in that. How do they make sure that fewer of their employees or their suppliers or their business partners are suffering from this kind of precarious economy that we've been through? So I'm hoping that businesses will see the other side of this as an opportunity for really committed leadership, not just on decarbonisation, but on building a better country than I think we were before this and using their voice to talk uh, compassionately and intelligently about fairness and equity in our society. There's got to be a social justice uplift as a consequence of this um, utter disaster for so many people. Mm. Well, on, on, on that point, I'll, I'll bring this chat to a close, Jonathan. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I hope you stay safe and, and well there um, and that we can catch up in person um, again soon, whenever that may be possible. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Paul Pullman, who many of you will, of course, know as the former chief executive of Unilever, and he's now working as the co-founder of the sustainability foundation, Imagine. Paul, hello. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been over a year um, since we last spoke at the ED Awards in 2019, when you picked up our Lifetime Achievement Award. Tell us where you're connecting from today and what life in lockdown has been like for you. Well, thank you, Luke, for the opportunity and having such uh important speakers. I'm honored to be part of that series and thank you for what you're doing there. I'm actually calling you from uh, Geneva. Uh, I lived there since uh, 2000 already and we're lucky enough to have a yard and here was my wife so we're spending the time together. Uh, it turns out to be busier than I thought. More people seem to work, more emails, more meetings to participate in, but we're all getting used to this and count ourselves amongst the more fortunate ones. And uh, again, a reminder how we have to fight for the ones that are in different positions and ensure that whatever we come out with now is uh, out of this COVID crisis, that we come out definitely better than we went into it. Mm. And um, so just for some context then um, yeah. for this discussion, I mentioned I spoke earlier in the week with, with Cristiano Figueres and Jonathan Porritt. Uh, and I have to say they both gave us some uh, real reasons for optimism when it comes to driving a green recovery out of this pandemic. Um, Christiana said there was an opportunity for the solutions to coronavirus and climate change to converge uh, and for us to rewire uh, our economies in the wake of this pandemic. Um, and Jonathan said he thought there was an opportunity now for businesses to really redefine committed leadership and build a, a better economy than we had before. So. Paul, where do you stand on that point? Can you see a strong relationship between the coronavirus recovery and climate action? Well, I could not agree more with the previous uh, speakers, although it is, will be a challenge and we need to be very mindful how we do that. But what they are both saying is that there is really no alternative. I think this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to change the, the way the world looks like. And um, we were already on the past that people understood that there is an issue with climate change. 
In fact, $24 trillion of market cap of companies had already agreed on climate action. It's good to remind ourselves that even in the U.S., uh, green energy had surpassed coal as a source of energy. So many statistics that would point at us moving in the right direction. But what was very clear was that we were not moving at the speed and scale that is needed. And the current pandemic, sad that this may be, uh, has taught us a few lessons. The first one is that you cannot have healthy people on an unhealthy planet. And the relationships between biodiversity, climate and health is now better understood, regretfully, but it's better understood. The second thing is that um, the climate uh, crisis or the pandemic, sorry, has also pointed out is that it's the poor again that suffer disproportionately, not different from climate change. People that live in higher polluting areas, people that are not having access to the same nutrition as we do, um, seem to pay a disproportionate price again once more. And the third thing I think that is important is the need for science. Um, in climate change, uh, science was denied by some of them and they were to some extent successful. Um, the coronavirus has again brought science to the foreground. And last but not least, where the bigger challenges will be in global cooperation. We, um, we can only solve these crises, uh, the pandemic being an excellent example of that, if we work together. And that's obviously a very difficult thing. I believe that um, the sustainable uh, recovery that we need doesn't only lead the, to a better world that we should live in, but I also believe it's actually the best way to get out of this. Over and over, studies are pointing out that it creates more jobs, that they are better jobs, that they are better paid jobs, and actually more secure jobs because you don't have to deal with the stranded assets and the job losses if you make the wrong decisions. And now, with more uh, countries worrying about their own shop and going back to protecting their own boundaries, if you want to, or borders, uh, we also find that the green recovery actually is more nationally driven than import dependent. If you build bike paths, if you retrofit buildings, if you accelerate the conversion to green energy, if you do landscape restoration, all things that create enormous amounts of employment that we need desperately and unlock global economies are now within reach. So I'm very happy to see that more and more CEOs are calling for a green recovery. In the US, Ceres brought a group of companies together with over $10 trillion of market cap. Uh, I'm the vice chair of the UN Global Compact. We brought $2.3 trillion of companies together, 300 of them, more or less, calling for a green recovery. And you see the same happening in Europe behind the European Green Deal, but also in the different countries, be it Germany, France, the Netherlands, where the business community is saying, you know, let's be smart. Now, short term, there's obviously a need to save lives and to protect livelihoods. So of the 10 trillion money that is spent right now, that has been spent against social protection, against shuffle-ready projects, and not enough yet on green uh, recovery. I understand that because the need was immediate, saving lives and protecting jobs. But now that we think about the recovery states, we have a unique opportunity to design it right. And if you go back to the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, the countries that did that actually benefited a lot. Um, uh, South Korea spent 70% of its recovery money behind green investments, and they were the first ones to come out. 
The US had actually projects at that time around coastal protection, created 17 times more jobs than investment in fossil. So we didn't learn fully the lesson in the financial crisis. It led to this. We were too slow to react, not holistic enough in terms of converting the economic systems. Now we have that opportunity to do this, but it requires all of us, uh, Luke, there's no question about it. Mm. Uh, it does. Uh, I'd like to, I guess, dig deeper into this concept then of, of a green recovery, because there's sort of two primary ways um, we can look at this. And the first is, is the policy angle. Um, so at the moment, as you say, governments are understandably being very much focused on, on the here and now and overcoming the crisis at hand. Um, but given that we are likely to be entering into an unprecedented uh, recession as a result of this situation, there's a real obvious risk that investment into things like net zero and energy efficiency and the circular economy gets put onto the back burner. So what for you would strong political leadership look like when it comes to recovering from this pandemic in a sustainable way? Yeah, well, it is very clear that what we've seen, at least in fighting the crisis, that the government's bandwidth is very narrow and it's focused on the here and now. There's not much long-term thinking and frankly, there's not much global cooperation. This has shown a lack of leadership at the political level, I believe more so than in the private sector. There are obviously exceptions like there are in the private sector in the other way. But governments need help. And what is very clear is that um, the decision makers in the governments might not really have access to the right information. And it's easier to go back to where we came from. People are starting to talk about restarting the economy again or going back to what it was before COVID. That would be a tragedy. And what we need to ensure is that the government leaders don't only have the right information, but also that they hear from us loud and clearly from civil society, from the private sector, that this is a moment to redesign and take some courage. The knowledge that green growth is better growth, the knowledge that it creates more jobs, the knowledge that it actually saves costs also for governments, that it has a higher return on investment for government spending is not fully yet uh, sunk in at the government level. And then you obviously have the vested order or some governments that outright go against it. Unfortunately, some of the bigger governments like the US where we might have to wait till after the elections to see some meaningful progress, but it doesn't prevent all of us to step up and to help de-risk that political process. In, the U in, the, in Europe, you have the famous uh, European Green Deal that um, now needs to translate from words into actions. And I think that the European Commission, Mrs. von der Leyen, uh, Mr. Timmermans, they are a little bit more courageous in moving forward because they hear us all talk about it. When there are bailout packages, we want to make it conditional. When car manufacturers want to reduce the emission standards, other businesses speak up. So there is a moment, I think, now that we all have a responsibility to play to help move this political process forward. But if we don't get the right frameworks and regulations, it's very difficult to get this transition. Even in Europe, we still have about 300 billion, uh, slightly less of fossil fuel subsidies. We have a price on carbon that is far from what is needed. So these are simple things where regulations need to be put in place, taxonomy on the financial markets, um, and, and other things being put in place to accelerate this. And, and we need to be part of that. It would be too simplistic, I think, with the challenge that we have to only put that burden on the politicians alone. Mm. 
And you've mentioned a few times there about sort of redesigning or, or, or rewiring the economy as a result of this pandemic. Do you have any specific examples of opportunities um, to do that? Well, opportunities are tremendous. In fact, there are 17 countries now in Europe that are calling already on the European Commission to accelerate the green plans. Uh, you take Poland, for example, a country that has been historically a little bit reticent to move faster, uh, has now seen their building industry collapse. 10% of their economy is the building industry. Why not help Poland now to redesign and get to, to a, a greener industry there? They could leapfrog. The Eastern European countries uh, have had a higher cost of finance right now. It's zero or negative in many places in the world with the amounts of money that we're willing to pull in uh, to these economies. We can actually help there now make the finances available that weren't there. Uh, Denmark has come with a very good uh, plan with the government where they're saying we're building now uh, offshore wind islands bigger than we've ever done before. Iceland and the Netherlands are making subsidies uh, only available to companies that create a better future, not that came from the past. So um, Spain has just passed legislation yesterday as we talk on getting to uh, electric vehicles, I think by, don't want to be quoted, by I think 2040, and they're trying to pull it forward and signing off on the Paris Agreement. So we're seeing the countries moving with specific uh, examples on, on uh, how to green these economies and we need to support them. We see the same thing in the private sector where more and more companies are going together and say this is our moment to accelerate. We've put 68 companies together in the fashion industry, some of the biggest names across the value chain. And they've used this opportunity not only to produce more masks and to go together and solve the immediate crisis, but to also say, what is what will it take now to get to regenerative cotton? What will it take for all of us to sign up to net zero by 2050? And interestingly, with Imagine, we're starting now to work with the food. And I just came off the line with Agnes, Kalibati in Africa, who runs Agra, we're starting to look at the Food Alliance with a big enough group of CEOs to see if we can accelerate as well. As you know, the food system is one of the major systems of uh, influencing climate change, about 30% of it in the way we produce food, uh, destroy natural environments, uh, waste food, uh, transport of food and all the other things. Um, and actually that should be a value chain that is carbon positive in my opinion. And I think we can get there in the next 20, 30 years, economically right, a necessity for an, uh, a survival point of view, and actually yeah, makes the companies much more resilient. So these are some very practical examples that are now being worked at an accelerated pace than before, uh, Luke. Mm, okay, thank you. Um, so the other angle then, just to look at this green recovery from, is, the, is obviously the, the business angle. Um, during your time at Unilever, it's fair to say that you'd really sort of pioneered what it meant to be a truly sustainable business at such scale. Um, your business model generated 300% shareholder return over the last 10 years and your sustainable brands were delivering upwards of 70% of, of your growth. So what for you will good business look like as the world recovers from this pandemic, both from an environmental and social sustainability perspective? Yeah, we might have been a little bit early uh, when I started in Unilever in 2000 uh, and 2008, early 2009 with the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And I got a lot of critique and skepticism and cynics. And it's interesting to go back to some of these articles. But now we're more than 10 years further. And there's a lot of data that we didn't have at that point in time. 
uh, now it's clear that um, the ESG uh, outperforms the non-ESG. If you look in the financial market, 77% of the ESG portfolios outperform. We know now that companies that have internalized carbon that do a disclosure, have a price on carbon, tend to be better performers. They have a higher focus on good governance. They understand what is going out there, happening out there. And these companies are more responsibly run, just like companies that are more diverse. So the whole ESG has gone up. And I think because of this crisis, the S element, call it the social from environmental, social and governance, has increased enormously. And the financial community is increasingly able to assess that risk and assign values to that. So it's not surprising either that you see in this crisis that companies that were run with a longer term multi-stakeholder model with a strong purpose at its core tend to be companies that have not only performed better into this crisis, but I think are also better placed coming out of the crisis. As you've referred to before, Luke, the challenges are enormous. We need to uh, change our health system. That's very clear. We need to change our food system, which is one of the coming crises that we need to be very mindful of. We need to attack climate change and move to a greener growth model. And all of that whilst moving the financial market to the longer term and trying to make some sense of global governance. This is not easy. So the companies that are going to survive are not only the ones that run this multi-stakeholder longer term model uh, and, and, uh, and resilience in that sense, but also companies that can work in partnership that where the leaders take more responsibilities than what would be defined by their own self-interest. And mm -hmm. these partnerships have been formed with COVID, tremendous partnerships around making ventilators or masks or getting sanitation products to the stores. Companies have discovered that working together, one plus one is not three, but one plus one is 11. And I hope that some of these partnerships we can nurture as we move forward. Um, and that's partnerships, by the way, not only in, in the sectors or uh, between civil society and businesses, but also partnerships with governments. At the end of the day, once more, if the governments don't accelerate investment in R&D, for example, uh, hydrogen or carbon capture storage, battery capacity, we're very close to making this the most viable energy source out, out costing, if you want to, or outperforming all the other ones that we have, but it needs a little bit of concerted push. And this is the moment to do that. So it's these, these business models that work with these partnerships that put society smack in the middle uh, are the business models longer term focused are the ones that tend to do best. And obviously, uh, at the end of the day, it all boils down to leadership. We know what needs to be done. We've never been so forewarned about what is happening out there. I also believe we've never been so forearmed to do something about it. And at the end of the day, it takes the leadership and the willpower. Willpower itself, a renewable resource. So, at, so we need to invest in these courageous leaders that are willing to feel a little bit uncomfortable, go the extra mile, form these alliances, which are not always easy to do. And that's really what Imagine is focused on and uh, is going to be very, very important uh, moving forward. Mm. Yeah, we'll come back to your work on Imagine in a moment, actually. But you mentioned um, uh, alongside partnerships, it sounds like advocacy is a, is a key word here as well in terms of some of those alliances being formed. You mentioned the CEO-led um, alliance of 155 companies um, that was formed with the UN Global Compact earlier right. this week. Um, 
most of those organizations in that mix though are, are extremely large organizations i think between all of them there's more than five million employees involved um and beneath those big corporations we obviously have the sme market um which here in the uk represents 99.9 percent .9 of the business population many smes will of course be impacted very severely by this pandemic uh, will be struggling to stay afloat even um, and that investment into things like clean energy or science-based targets might just not be viable at the moment. So this may be a bit of an impossible question, Paul, but um, what does sort of good sustainable business look like at that SME level as those organisations try desperately to recover from this situation? There's no question, uh, Luke, that SMEs have suffered uh, disproportionately because they're in a much more fragile situation than many of the bigger companies. But don't underestimate the bigger companies either. There's a major transformations going on in the travel and tourist industry and fashion and others, as you have seen, and some big uh, numbers of unemployment that we need to talk about in a minute, which is probably the bigger challenge that we have. But nevertheless, the estimates are that probably 30% of the SMEs could potentially disappear from our economy. And as a chairman of the International Chambers of Commerce, we spent a disproportionate amount of time with the governments, especially the G20 countries, to ensure that in the rescue packages, the SMEs are supported. Nowhere near enough, we recognize that, but your question is absolutely pertinent. Um, in Unilever itself, when we implemented the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, we, had to, we have about 80 to 100,000 suppliers, 20,000 chains every year. And most of these suppliers are in fact the SMEs. So the SMEs, are tied into the bigger companies and they can benefit from the decisions these bigger companies take. In Unilever with our responsible sourcing code, we've definitely definitely made these smaller companies or SMEs more resilient to be in our, our um, value chain. Often we talk about trade-offs, but it's more a matter of if you run your company for the longer term or for the shorter term. If you run it for the longer term, it's better to pay your employees well if you run it for the short term, you might squeeze them, but you won't get away with that for the for, for long. So uh, even SMEs will now find out that in 70% of the world, uh, green energy is cheaper than fossil. Uh, even SMEs will find out that getting to a more circular economy model and recycling makes more sense. Um, you know, often in a restaurant, uh, before the crisis even, the difference between survival in a restaurant, which is a very tough business, and going under, was how you manage food waste. I remember with our Unilever food solutions businesses, we could show them as, you know, don't put a piece of bread as every plate, but put a little basket in the middle and you'll see people consume less bread. Don't serve everybody dessert. And when only 10% of the world now wants to eat dessert, you know, make small little things and make it presentable and people would be happier. But to work food waste, for example, is a thing that anybody can do. So I wouldn't say that we live in a world where that all these things are trade-offs anymore. There are many things possible within REITs for the SMEs as well that they can be actively doing in their industries alone together and actually tie up with some of the bigger companies and can benefit from that. But I recognize that some things are more difficult, but you don't want to boil the ocean at once or eat the elephant in one bite, start with, start with the things that make sense. But it is very clear that even the SMEs uh, need to be in industries of the future and need to operate in a way that consumers accept. 90% of consumers don't want to go back to where we came from. And increasingly, they want to buy or deal with companies that are responsible, both social and environmental. And that's, as you say, estimates too for the SMEs, which are the bulk of the economy versus uh, none. 
And the companies that actually do best now are companies that have adapted very quickly, are innovative, are fast, are uh, agile, and they're often the smaller companies, not the bigger ones, that jump on the enormous opportunities that are currently being presented. Okay. Um, thank you. I, I also wanted to look quickly then at this um, through the lens of the people who will be watching this conversation, the um, sustainability, CSR, energy directors and, and managers who are trying to lead those green business efforts within the organisations they work for. Um, we've heard from hundreds of these professionals who are telling us that their biggest challenges at the moment are uh, a, they're, they're struggling to engage the rest of the business on, on climate issues and, and struggling to work out when and how they kind of drive that engagement. And, and B, their budgets for sustainability or energy activities are simply being cut or postponed or suspended. Um, so what advice would you have for those professionals who are feeling a bit of an uphill struggle at the moment? Is there anything they could do differently or ways they could approach the conversations to, to get the buy-in that they need? Yeah, I recognize that and I obviously have uh, sympathy for that at the time of Brexit, which is very regrettable in the UK, as we are now discovering, is uh, also uh, the CEOs got sidetracked. And I think with the immediate dealing with the COVID, which had the attention and keeping companies afloat and just having your liquidity work for many of the companies, as you already referred to before, requires some attention here and now. And it's normal that the human being is drawn to the immediate and urgent versus the important and perhaps a little bit longer term. So be bear with your management for, for that and understand also their pressures for the time being. But increasingly, the CEOs I talk to, uh, big and small companies alike, are starting to think of how do we come out of this and how do we come out of this better? Uh, after having survived this shock or, or adjusted to it in, in many ways, taking care of your people, dealing with the enormous stress, including the mental pressures, etc. More and more people are thinking about, hey, what has happened in society? And there is no doubt that some trends have accelerated, new trends will be coming, but that we're going to live in a different abnormal than what we came from before. And if companies don't adapt and internalize, they're not going to survive. So the first step for sustainability officers is, is to engage. Engage, first of all, with the HR departments and the management around purpose, around bringing humanity back to business, uh, running your businesses with a higher level of empathy, etc. Then the second thing is bring the data on uh, the conversion where the greener economy from whatever study you pick up on food and land use, on resilience, on um, cities, uh, points to uh, enormous opportunities in both job creation and in terms of economic opportunities uh, for a greener economy. So familiarize yourself with this and, and see what the opportunities are for your companies. And slowly but surely start having these conversations at a strategic level for management. But don't get energy sapped from the current situation where you might find that the CEO doesn't have time for you. Uh, the CEO, he or she also is at home, has to juggle their time with their children, with all the other things, and with the pressures of a company that they've never had before. This is a bigger recession than, than uh, uh, mankind has ever faced. So have a little bit of sympathy for that and start preparing that ground for the future uh, is probably an opportunity. Think about the things you can do with technology now that is going to accelerate. Uh, your travel will totally change. Uh, your carbon footprint as a company will totally change. That's the thing. If you don't do it, you'll be uncompetitive. Start mm -hmm. thinking about 
the um, uh, different role of governments now. After having invested 10, 15 trillion in these economies, governments are going to play a different role. How can you as a company be part of that and influence that in the positive sense or to be of interest to uh, your CEO as well? And start to look at some of these other trends that we've talked during this uh, talk to internalize those to your advantage. And I think you'll have a very willing ear with the a majority of the CEOs, just as we have seen quite a big group of companies managing this uh, crisis responsibly. I'm actually, to a great extent, proud of the business community. Undoubtedly, some of them have made mistakes, but they've been called out fairly quickly, also in the UK. But the ones that understood this and have risen to the challenge have seen their reputations rise, their businesses do better, their value chain, their employees, their communities more engaged. I think if this crisis has shown us anything is that it is time for ESG, that it is time for more responsible, sustainable, long-term business models. And you would be well served to gather that evidence and inject that into the companies so that that thinking also gets to your board level. If finally it doesn't, which I'm sure that there will be 15, 20 or 25 percent of the companies where the CEOs don't get it, you know, fine, then I'd say there are better things in life to do if you want to live a life with purpose. And those companies have had a hard time already before attracting people. Uh, and I think it will be even more difficult uh, in the future. So mm. don't work for dinosaurs, bring them <laughs> to the graveyard, but work for people that get it and want to be well positioned as resilient companies for years to come. And more importantly, want to make a difference who are creating a better world for all. That's why we're after all here. Exactly, yeah. Um... Okay, so I'm, I'm conscious of, of your time, Paul. I know we've probably only got about a few minutes left. Um, so I wanted to ask you just quickly a, a bit more about you um, and the work you've been doing. Firstly, with a, a quick reflection on your time there at Unilever, because I know it was over a year now since you stepped down from, from the company. Um, you spent 10 years at the helm there, um, took the company to the top of pretty much every sustainability list and ranking that there is. Um, so what was the, the biggest or most important thing you learned um, about sustainability leadership and corporate social responsibility during that 10 years? Is there a particular secret to success or advice you would give um, your former self um, just joining the business when it comes to sustainability? Well, I don't, I don't uh, do that for myself, nor do I believe in a legacy. Uh, I'm very proud that uh, Ellen Job has really uh, taken over uh, and hit the ground running. And actually in this COVID crisis, he's shown once more what uh, the fabric is that Unilever is made of. You know, 100 million in products uh, donated, if I read it well, 500 million in financing to people in the value chain, more than any bank is volunteering to do. So I'm very proud that I've been able to lead that great institution, but even prouder to see that these values permeate now in, in this uh, challenging time because uh, companies, are being called out during challenges, not when everything goes well. This is the moment to see if companies are serious about ESG and, and all that. What I've learned in my 10 years in Unilever is what we were trying to show, that multi-stakeholder longer-term business models are actually ultimately good for the shareholders as well, not as an objective, but as a result. And you've already alluded to the 300% return, the 19% return on invested capital. But I also think that putting the sustainable development goals at the center of it and making it a purpose-driven business model like we've done for all of our brands is actually turning out to be very profitable. And because it's very profitable, uh, it's also so, so much more difficult to unwind. People said, are you worried when you leave? 
that the company will slip back. No, Alan Job is actually driving it higher and, and seeing this tremendous potential that is there. So that's a learning for all of us. And it's now backed up with a lot more data that uh, make it easier, I think, to sell. The financial community is getting interested in it. More and more consumers are asking for it. We talked about some responsible governments that are starting to understand it. So now we need to build this momentum at scale and speed. And that's exactly why I left Unilever. I thought 10 years is enough anyway, 10 years on the dot. But I also felt that CEOs alone can only do so much. And even within industries, they can only achieve so much. And the demand on CEOs is getting bigger and bigger. But some of the CEOs, like now we're working with the agriculture CEOs in Africa, wanting to solve the issues of food security, the locals and all that. And they say, I cannot deal with me myself as an individual company with all the bureaucracy in Africa, or I don't have all the pieces of the value chain. So we've created Imagine. What Imagine is doing is bringing the CEOs of the bigger companies together at a global level across the value chain by industry sector. And now that we have 25 to 30% of the CEOs together, we can actually get them to be more courageous, feel a little bit more uncomfortable at the group behavior, but also start working on these tipping points with civil society, with governments to truly make the changes that we need at the scale and speed that we need. So we're very, um, we think that this is one of the, the better uh, ways of tackling uh, today's and tomorrow's problems to ensure that we don't leave anybody behind and create this more sustainable and equitable future that we all aspire to live in. Mm. What's your primary sort of success metric then um, with Imagine? Well, we look at two things which are closely related, not surprisingly to you, uh, from the sustainable development goals, and that's climate change and inequality. And that's obviously, as many people have pointed out, and the COVID crisis once more, uh, they're, they're closely related. So any work that we do has to uh, be in line with the uh, achieving the Paris agreements of net zero by 2050, and also has to ensure in a more uh, more equity, more dignity and respect and uh, for the ones that have been left behind and ultimately more people um, aspiring or being able to get the, the lives that we've become accustomed to. Um, the food security alone uh, with COVID now, um, the related food security, according to the uh, World Food Programme, is moving the people that are in acute risk of starvation from 100 million to 265 million. We have 826 million people going to bed hungry every day, not even knowing if they wake up the next day. So these are the things that we fight for. And these are the things that we hope to address now with scale and speed and stop talking about it, but actually move the needle. And that's the ultimate success for all of us. Mm. And that's a, a good uh, rousing note to end on. Um, your work there does sound truly fascinating, so I'm really interested to see how things um, move forward with Imagine. Um, Paul, I, I realise we've, we've sort of used up even more of your time than we've initially asked for, so I really, really appreciate um, the time you've taken. So there you have it, an hour and more of some much-needed insight, inspiration and optimism from three renowned activists and business leaders. I do hope you enjoyed this episode and, and thank you again to our sponsors, Central Business Solutions um, and indeed the free uh, star-studded speakers. Um, you can access all of our podcast episodes via iTunes and Spotify, including part two of this two-parter, which is being published alongside this episode. So you'll be able to access this straight away. So once this is finished, please do go find that. And I do hope you'll enjoy me for the anatomy of a net zero target. So hopefully see you then. Goodbye.